Hey, I'm Ramya, and this is the Charlotte Storytellers Podcast. We're a storytelling group that meets every week in Charlotte, North Carolina, to play silly improv games and workshop stories on a theme. Today's story is brought to you by David. I've, over the years, learned that I should be a little bit more quantitative when huh. I report out. So okay. <laughs> I wanted to, on a scale, give you a number. So that would be a nine today. That's a very round number, I feel like. Yeah, True quant would give me at least like three decimal places. Not much more that would be swaying me closer to a 10 that would be attainable. So. <laughs> okay, you're like inching towards a 9. Yeah, you can never. I mean, it's never really going to be a full 10, right? Fair enough, fair enough. I feel like the only times I'm at a full 10 is when I am like on stage, like telling a story, like spotlight on me. Like time to shine. Well, that's, and that's the hard part is because usually in those moments – you peak at a 10, but then right after you probably go down to like a five or a six because you, you can't compete with that energy and reception that you had mm. in that moment. Have you ever done any sort of performing arts, storytelling, live stage thing before? Yeah. I, over the past couple of years, got into improv comedy and that's been a real interesting adventure. Improv initially, I thought, was just focused on being funny, but you quickly learn how much relies on your active listening skills. Hmm. And we had a number of really eye-opening exercises. And one of my favorite exercises was one day we all came into the classroom and we have a group of about 20 people. And the instructor called three people up onto the stage. And each person was assigned a random topic that was provided to them from the audience. So let's say person A was going to talk about dogs, person B was going to talk about the environment, person C was going to talk about their favorite food cuisine. So the first person gets up and they're talking about their topic and the instructor says, there's only one rule. I want you to listen to what this person's saying. That's all you have to do. And then when I call you, you're going to talk about your topic. So the first person talks about their topic, they get done and it's no more than 60 seconds. The next person gets called up. And in their mind, they're prepared to talk about what was assigned to them. But in a last minute switch of the parameters, the instructor says, all right, pause. I now want you to recall verbatim what the first person oh said God. and mirror their mannerisms. And it was incredible how afterwards in debriefing, almost everyone in the audience could do that. But the second and third person had no idea what they said because the whole time they were thinking about what they were going to say on their topic. They weren't listening. So that's not only relating to improv, but also daily life. How many times have you gotten in an argument or a discussion and the whole time the other person's talking, you're just trying to figure out what you're going to say to it. Yeah. And you probably miss the key points. Yeah. So improv opened my eyes to a lot of that kind of skill that's required to effectively communicate that maybe you're not actively thinking about. A lot of people aren't intentionally trying to listen better. And you can tell when people are, when you're talking and they just sit there and they're not rushed and they're not rushing you. And after you finish, they kind of pause and take a moment to take it in and say, interesting, or they make some comment and acknowledge it. It's not immediately right after where they have their response placed. Right. Yeah. Right. It's not like a tennis game back and forth. It's more like a swim race where you like, oh, it's a terrible analogy. I'm going to drop that one. But yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So back to your original question, you know, through that, I had to perform a couple of times 
and like you said, it, it really is a rush and it's really exciting. It's there's that moment in the beginning where you're trying to figure out if the audience is on your side. And usually when you get your first kind of laugh or at least a chuckle, you know, you can lighten up. People think you're funny, yeah. but it's always a struggle when, uh, and, th and this isn't, it didn't happen to our class, but I've seen other performers when they we put themselves out there, they're either singing, talking, trying to be funny, and they just don't connect with the audience. Yeah. It's gotta be a really you know, crushing feeling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's just, so we, we were lucky, but it was fun. So I, I enjoyed that. I haven't been as active, but it's a fun kind of hobby. And I used to work with a public speaking group at our company and I brought in our improv instructor to teach them the night before we would meet for Toastmasters to go over public speaking. Oh uh, yeah. I did and Toastmasters as a kid. It really helped them loosen up because in Toastmasters, it was very structured Formal. and it was good because yeah. you get really direct feedback and everyone has a very specific role. But there's not a lot of room for creativity outside of your actual speech. Right. So to get these people thinking on their toes, thinking on their feet, it was fantastic. Yeah, I think it went yeah. really well. We got a lot of good feedback. That's awesome. That's really cool. How do you think those skills translate over to storytelling? So a key part of storytelling is listening. And one of the reasons that I enjoy storytelling is that this group, when you go to tell a story, you have a captive audience and a Literally, lot of times- no one is allowed to move. <laughs> exactly. You're kind of like <laughs> positioned in there. Maybe there's not a lot of room, but Invisible in other scenarios, cuffs. right. You have to move chairs around. <laughs> in other times you're telling stories, there are a lot of interruptions. Mm -hmm. Maybe people don't want to listen to you. Maybe they're trying to eat some food. When here, once again, you have a totally captive audience just listening to you talk. And you yeah. get feedback if you want it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What is your story today about? So my story today is about a time where I infiltrated the Pacific Command Center of Scientology accidentally. I wasn't necessarily aware of what I was getting into. <laughs> so a couple of years ago, I found myself out in Los Angeles and it was my first time there and I was pampered with good food sites, saw some celebrities traveling around and I was meeting with a friend that grew up close to me. It was a neighbor. Her name is Stephanie. And we spent the weekend exploring the city and I really enjoyed it. We got to go to some improv shows and whatnot, but there was one particular moment on Saturday that kind of caught my attention and we were driving down the street and we drove by this blue building and this blue building reminded me of a hospital had a lot of windows, but it looked a little eerie and it was painted blue. The entire building was painted blue. So immediately I asked Stephanie, what is this building? What is this? Why is this here? It looks a little bit out of place. And she explained to me that it was building of Scientology and that rang a couple bells. And I reflected upon all the days during work when I would go to the supermarket to grab some food and in the U-Scan line, you would pass by all these tabloids and magazines that would have images of John Travolta and Tom Cruise and commentary about Scientology. And I was always curious how people got pulled into the whole Scientology deal. And I thought, perhaps this would be my chance. I'm in LA. It's the first time I need to investigate. Stephanie thought this was the dumbest idea ever, but 
I convinced her over three hours of negotiation that we should attend the Sunday morning, 11 o'clock service. And <laughs> I explained to her that a, we had a rental car, B, we didn't have to bring in any identification. C personally, I was leaving that evening in the airport. So I didn't mind if someone was going to you know, chase me or whatnot, but we had no identifying information and I thought it would just be such a cool adventure. So the next morning we get everything together, we get in the right state of mind and we head over <laughs> to the building. And once again, it's pretty imposing. It's huge. It's blue. It just looks out of place. They have all these signs around the building and whatnot, but we pull in and the parking lot was not just like a regular parking lot. It was kind of set up more of like a maze where there weren't necessarily clearly defined rows, but you kind of have to weave your way through. I think we passed a couple security officers on segways and they have cameras everywhere. So as we pull in and we're parking, we kind of have this feeling of, do we really know what we're getting into? But anyways, we reverse into a parking spot facing the entrance of the building and we kind of look at each other and we decide we're going to do this. We're here. We've made it. So we walk up to the building and we open the front doors and the best way to describe it is kind of like out of a Dr. Seuss book. You have people in lab coats, people in suits, walking upstairs, downstairs, opening doors, closing doors. There's a lot going on. My first reaction was I was under the impression an 11 o'clock service would be similar to what you would find at a typical church. You would come in, there would be a sign. It would say, welcome, come in over here. Maybe there's someone giving you bread. But it was very, very confusing. So fortunately, there was a receptionist sitting there in the lobby, and she looked at us and asked us if we needed help. And we said, yes, we're here for the 11 o'clock service. And she said, oh, no problem. So she paused. She looked at us and said, you two need to go downstairs into the hallway and take a right. And so I looked over at Stephanie and thought, simple enough. We can do that. The stairs are over there. But then the receptionist interjected and said, actually, wait, no, no, I'm sorry. You need to go upstairs, top floor, into the hallway, to the left. And that was kind of the beginning of these additional thoughts of angst and concern that entered our minds. But we figured we're in here. It's almost 11 o'clock. We're going to commit. So we went to the left and went over to the staircase and we ascended up the staircase. And as we're going up, we noticed these basically propaganda-like posters of what you would picture the Illuminati having at a meeting where there's a pyramid with eyeballs and kind of messaging related to enlightening yourself and free yourself. So we follow all this propaganda up the staircase and up at the very top, there's an inventory of all the rooms in the building. And the first couple are very standard and it's like the lobby receptionist area. And as you continue down the list, there are things like the cleansing room and the purification room. So kind of get more and more concern. It's building. And we progressed down the hallway. And as we're going down the hallway, there are rooms to our right and our left, but none of the rooms actually have doors on them. And we look in, and in these rooms, there are numerous people sitting at tables, looking at computer monitors with noise-canceling headphones on. I assume they're noise-canceling. And it looked like they were being brainwashed. At this point, we kind of realized potentially we were in danger. 
Once again, we had already made it all the way up there to the top floor and we were almost down to the end of the hallway. So we walked down to the left and the door was open. And right then and there, we realized no one else was here and it was 11 o'clock. And later I found out what likely would have happened. But at this point, Stephanie convinces me we need to get out. We had a code word to use when we wanted to leave. But at that moment, we were so distracted by everything that we had seen. It had gotten progressively stranger. We elected to just abort the mission and head out immediately. So we picked up the pace. We turned around. We went down the stairs. And in the lobby, we got a little bit caught up because they had one of their books that was unwrapped. And I thought I wanted to quickly kind of look through it. But before I could get to that, the receptionist looked over at us and asked, did you find everything okay? It's 11 o'clock. And we looked back at her and we had to acknowledge her. And we just said, yes, we need to go back out to the car and she needs to get something from her purse. In the moment it made sense, but in reflection, obviously it made no sense because she had her purse and obviously everything was in there. <laughs> and the lady just kind of looked at us and didn't respond verbally, but I knew, I knew she got it. So we hurry out, we get in the car. And when we get in the car, I pretend that it won't start. And I turn to Stephanie and say, the car's not starting. <laughs> and she's like, you idiot, come on, let's get out of here. And as I'm doing that out of my peripheral vision, I see the receptionist calling someone on a phone. And I think, oh, that would be brilliant to escalate the joke and just say that she's calling security. <laughs> So as I tell Stephanie that she's calling security, the front door opens and a guy in a lab coat comes out, points <laughs> directly at us and motions us to come back. So at this point, sheer panic, the car starts up just fine. There was no problem with the car starting. And once again, it was kind of like a maze. We couldn't just drive out, but I'll never forget this. It was kind of like a nightmare where every time the car turned to navigate out of the parking lot, the body of this guy would turn to face us with his hand still motioning us to return. So we scurry out, we narrowly escape, and that was that. Oh my God. Your life could have been so different from that point onwards. It could have been different because a couple years later, I was back in LA and <laughs> we decided to watch the Going Clear documentary on HBO. We learned all about it. What is it about? So the, the premise is a two-hour documentary on a number of people that have defected or escaped Scientology. Oh, my God. Defected. Exactly. <laughs> and it's interesting because that particular building is the Pacific Command Center. But a lot of people have been enslaved through Scientology. And it's very hard to get out. Oh, my God. It's a very enslaved in what sense? Recently in the news, I heard there were a couple of people that were freed, uh, but they had been enslaved <laughs> for a couple of months. But apparently, if you can't pay your debts, there's there's really no way to get out unless you find someone else to replace your spot. Oh my god! So a lot of people have died under Scientology. People, you know, signed contracts for millions of years, and I don't know how people get wrapped up into it, but. Once again, just you walking in there, did, yeah. I almost did, and it was very inviting. Until you <laughs> of all people, you know exactly how. <laughs> yeah, so it was a very, very interesting topic for a long time. Watched a number of documentaries, and 
the interesting bit was actually was back in LA a couple of weeks ago and I was going to a comedy show at UCB theater in Franklin and right across from the theater is the celebrity Scientology center where they have open houses every day from like nine to 10. And I thought it would be funny to take a picture <laughs> of this open house sign. So I'm walking along the street and it's public property and I take out my phone, but I'm kind of making it seem like I'm making a phone call. I'm not holding it up like you would a regular camera. And I snap a picture. Phony move. Sure enough. Exactly. <laughs> right after snapping this picture, a security guard appears out of nowhere on the side of the Scientology building and starts following me down the sidewalk, I guess for intimidation. Same security guard? Just a random security guard, just not, not the same one in a lab <laughs> coat. This one was dressed a little bit more like a police officer, but just appeared and followed me down the sidewalk. And that was a little alarming. So then I kind of let that go and heard some other stories about people getting trapped in there as well. So I'm sensing a theme of like your curiosity leading you to the heart of Scientology and then escaping hot in the heels of the security guard. Hindsight's 2020. It's uh, I've had a lot of instances of curiosity getting me in trouble, but also kind of realizing patterns after the fact. Yeah. yeah. What fueled your curiosity to go into the Scientology Museum at the Building, museum, church? Yeah, the Pacific Command Center. Oh, so, the Command Center, excuse me. In my mind, and you know, back then this was like, you know, twenty fifteen or so, you watch all these documentaries of crazy things that have happened in the past and you think stuff like that couldn't exist today. There's the internet, there are mobile phones, like information would spread relatively quickly if you were running some scam or trying to enslave people. And you'd be wrong. It's fascinating <laughs> how much of these things exist I mean, right America's in going through us. it right now. <laughs> exactly. How many of these things are right in front of us and people are just so unaware and they're just not educated on these topics. Yeah. So I think part of the reason that I wanted to go in was to find out for myself, do these things actually exist or yeah. is it just fictional? Morbid curiosity. Yeah. Yeah. There's something a strong sense of improv as you're telling the story. Like you really lay the scene with like you and Stephanie walking to the building. Like I'm picturing it in my mind's eyes. You're like going talking to the receptionist and each piece of dialogue like feels very suspenseful. It's like, oh, this is where they get nabbed. Like this is where it's going to go down. It's funny because I think for her more than me in the moment, probably up until we had gotten to the hallway where we saw the people in the rooms and they looked sedated almost watching these films. For me, it was kind of like a fun experience because I'm traveling in a place I've never been before. This mm -hmm. is all inherently different. This is kind of a cool experience where for her as a resident of LA lives, lives there, it's probably right? very, you know, real and uh, <laughs> just, probably a lot more scary than I had yeah. interpreted the situation. So looking back on it, there were, I think these key kind of defining moments, talking to the receptionist, seeing the inventory of rooms, all the propaganda were looking back at, you know, it was a lot more ominous and, and scary than I thought. Yeah. 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 How did you decide to structure the story the way you did? I'm a real big fan of suspense. Mm -hmm. Like you indicated momentarily <laughs> a few moments ago. So I think for me, it was important to set the scene a little bit, but 
but then kind of allow you to almost be in the story as if it was first person or as if you were with us. Yeah. So to kind of narrate step by step. And that's why it was in chronological order. Sure, sure. I didn't start from the end and, and jump around. I think it's for those kind of stories, it's a little bit more powerful to kind of walk you through it as if you're there. Step by step, right. Exactly. Yeah. It allows you to, to kind of put us in, like we're in your mindset, but um, towards the end, we kind of jump into Stephanie's mindset, which creates like an interesting dynamic between, you know, you two as characters and also you as a storyteller and then like us as audience privy to that. Yeah. It's yeah. a good little transition. Where do you want to take your storytelling in general? Like what is next step for you? For me, another reason that I was interested in storytelling is I think as humans, we, over the years, thousands of years ago, we've been so receptive to listening to stories. And for a while, that's how the majority of us communicated and we'd pass along traditions and messages and knowledge, language, right. everything was through story. We didn't have all the modern technology today to help us kind of retain it or, you know, outsource everything that we know to just searching it on Google or having it on your hard drive. So I think it's kind of a, an art that's not necessarily lost, but just something that people aren't intentional about. And I totally. think the more that you can refine your storytelling, the better communicator you're going to be and the more powerful messages you're going to have and probably the more people are going to listen to you. I think you're going to captivate more people and be a little bit more persuasive if you can pitch ideas as a story and not necessarily a business case. Yeah, sure, sure. What do you think makes a story compelling? I think enthusiasm and, and passion is really important. And that was something that we learned in improv. You see some of these speakers get up and they're really dry and, and dull. And you have to imagine most of the time your audience is not going to surpass you in energy. So right. if you set the tone, if you set the bar really low, you're already you're setting your audience right. very low uh, in terms of their energy level. So I think that's uh, a key aspect is you know enthusiasm. I think delivery is also important. But I once again, I think it's important to leave a little bit to the imagination. I enjoy descriptive language. But once again, it's like if you read a novel and then you see the movie and you don't necessarily agree with how the right. characters are portrayed in the movie and that kind of taints your idea of the story. I think it's good to leave the book bits is always open. better. Exactly. Yeah. Most of the time. Yeah. 90% <laughs> of the time. You can find the storytellers on Twitter or Instagram under at CLT Storytellers. That's it. Thanks for listening in today. Special thanks to Ben Rose for composing the sweet intro beats. 